Section 17 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Simon Parra. Chapter 5. National Opposition to Rome in Germany by A.F. Pollard, Part 1. Through all the political and religious confusion which distracted Germany during the period from the Diet of Worms to the Peasants' War, there runs one thread which gives to the story at least a semblance of unity, and that is the attempt and failure of a central government to keep the nation together on the path toward a practical reform in church and state. The reform was no less imperative than the obstacles to it were formidable. Germany was little more than a geographical expression, and a vague one withal, it was not a state, it could hardly be called a nation, so deep were its class divisions. Horizontal as well as vertical lines traversed it in every part, and its social strata were no more fused into one nation than its political sections were welded into one organized state. Rival ambitions and conflicting interests might set prince against prince, knight against knight, and town against town, but deeper antagonism ranged knight against princes and cities, or cities against princes and knights. They might all conspire against Caesar, or the peasant might rise up against them. Imperial authority was an ineffective shadow brooding over the troubled water and unable to still the storm. Separatism in every variety of permutation and combination was erected into a principle, and on it was based the Germanic political system. Yet this warring concourse of atoms felt once and again a common impulse and adopted on rare occasion a common line of action. With few exceptions, the German people were bent on reform of the church, and with one voice they welcomed the election of Charles V. Nor for the moment was the hope of political salvation entirely quenched. The efforts of Berthold of Mainz and Fredericks of Saxony to evolve order out of the chaos had been foiled by the skill of the Emperor Maximilian, and the advent of Luther had been the signal for a fresh eruption of discord. But the urgency of the need produced a correspondingly strong demand for national unity, and at his election, Charles was pledged to renew the attempt to create a national government, to maintain a national judicature, and to pursue national policy. Unhappily, vague aspirations and imperial promises were poor substitutes for political forces and the forms in which the common feeling of the nation found vent at its strength to centrifugal tendencies and contributed their share to the ruin of unity. The attempt to remodel the church divided the realm into two persistently hostile camps, and the succession of Charles V secured the throne of the Caesars to a family which, which was too often ready to sacrifice its national imperial duties to the claims of dynastic ambition. Seldom has a nation had better cause to repent a fit of enthusiasm than Germany had when it realized the effects of the election of Charles V. Of his rivals, Francis I would no doubt have made a worse emperor, but the choice of Ferdinand a suggestion made by Margaret of Savoy and peremptorily rejected by Charles himself, or of Frederick of Saxony, would probably have been attempted with less disastrous consequences to the German national cause. In personal tastes and sympathies, in the aims he pursued within his German kingdom and in his foreign policies, 
Charles V was an alien. His ways were not those of his subjects, nor were his thoughts their thoughts. He could neither speak the German language nor read the German mind. Nurtured from birth in the Burgundian lands of his father, he at first regarded the world from a purely Burgundian point of view and sorely offended his Spanish subjects by his neglect of their interest in concluding the Treaty of Noyon in 1516. But the Flemish aspect of his court and his policy rapidly changed under the southern influence, and the ten years of his youth in 1517-20 and 1522-29, which he spent in Spain, developed the Spanish tastes and feelings which he derived from his mother, Juana. His mind grew ever more Spanish in sympathy, and this mental evolution was more and more clearly reflected in Charles' dynastic policy. So far as it was affected by national considerations, those considerations became ever more Spanish. The Colossus, which bestowed the world, gradually turned its face southward, and it was to Spain and not to the land of his birth that Charles retired to die. From this development, Germany could not fail to suffer. German soldiers helped to win Pavia and to desecrate Rome, but their blood was shed in vain so far as the fatherland was concerned. Charles' conquest in Italy, made in the name of the German Empire and supported by German imperial claims, went to swell the growing bulk of the Spanish monarchy, and when he was crowned by Pope Clement VII at Bologna, it was noted that functions which belonged to the right of princes and of the empire were performed by Spanish grandees. His promise to the German nation to restore to the empire its pristine extent and glory was interpreted in practice as an undertaking to enhance at all costs the prestige of the Habsburgs family. The loss of its theoretical rights over such states as Milan and Genoa was, however, rather sentimental than a real grievance to the nation. It had better cause for complaint when Charles, in 1543, in effect, severed the Netherlands from the empire and transferred them to Spain. He sacrificed German interests in Holstein to those of his brother-in-law, Christian II of Denmark. And although he was not primarily responsible for the loss of Metz, Toul, and Verdun in 1552, his neglect of German interests along the Slavonic coast of the Baltic was not without effect upon the eventual incorporation of Estonia, Livonia, and Courland in the Russian domains of the Tsar. German troops had been wont to march on Rome, but Charles brought Italian troops to the banks of the Elbe. He introduced into Germany that Spanish taint, which was only washed out in the Thirty Years' War, and he then sought to turn that tide of northern influence, which had been flowing ever since the decline of the Roman Empire. In religion, as well as in politics, Charles' increasingly Spanish tendencies had an evil effect on the empire. He was no theologian, and he could never comprehend the reformers' objection to Roman dogma, but that did not make him less hostile to their cause. His attitude towards religion was halfway between the genial orthodoxy of his grandfather Maximilian and the gloomy fanaticism of his son, Philip II. But his mind was always traveling away from the former and toward the latter position, and in the transition enhanced the difficulty of coming to an accommodation with the Lutheran heretics. His orthodoxy, however, implied no blindness to the abuses of the Pope's temporal power, 
and was always conditioned by regard for the emperor's maternal interests. The fervid declaration of zeal against Luther, which Charles read at the Diet of Worms, had been described as the most genuine expression of his religious feelings. No doubt it was sincere, but it is well to note that the emperor's main desire was to then wean Leo X from his alliance with Francis I, and to prove to the papal nuncio that whatever the Diet might do, Charles' heart was in the right place. If he often assumed the role of papal champion, he could on occasion remember that he was a successor of Henry IV, and to some at least, the sack of Rome must have seemed a revenge for the sin as Canossa. He could tell Clement that that outrage was the just judgment of God. He could seize the temporalities of the bishopric of Huthrek and speak disrespectfully of papal excommunication. He could discuss proposals for deposing the Pope and destroying his temporal power, and was even tempted to think that Luther might one day become of importance if Clement continued to thwart the imperial plans. With Charles, as with every prince of the age, including the Pope, political far outweighed religious motives. Chivalry and the crusading spirits were both dead. His religious faith and family pride might both have impelled him to avenge upon Henry VIII the wrongs of Catherine of Aragon. But these, he said, were private griefs. They must not be allowed to interfere with the public considerations which compelled him to conciliate the English king. And his one aim throughout the affair was to provide for the succession of his cousin to the throne of England. That was a clear dynastic issue which appealed to Charles with a force which no other motive could rival. One simple principle pervaded the whole of Charles' action, and one object he pursued with unswerving fidelity throughout his public career. It was neither the conversion of heretics nor the overthrow of the Turks. It was not even a national object, for Charles was too cosmopolitan and his lands too heterogeneous for him to become such an exponent of national aspirations as Francis I and Henry II were in France, or Henry VIII and Elizabeth in England. But he was deeply imbued with pride in the Habsburg race and faith in the family star. To the service of the Habsburgs, he devoted his industry, his patience, his tenacity of purpose, and his great diplomatic abilities. Therein lay the reason of his ultimate failure. In the end, the principle of nationality defied the Habsburg power, and not a foot of the land conquered by Charles remains to the Spaniard today. The imperial throne of Germany was thus a possession which Charles sought to use in the Habsburg interest, and this idea dominated not merely his foreign policy, but the course he pursued with regard to domestic affairs. He was told by his minister, Maximilian von Zevenbergen, that the only means to prevent the empire from becoming a democratic republic like Switzerland was the extension within its borders of the absolutist Habsburg's power, and to this dynastic use the emperor returned, so far as he could, his prerogative as national sovereign. The great enemy of imperial unity was the territorial principle, and Charles himself regarded it as such, yet he never hesitated to extend his territorial possessions at the expense of the national government. Every element in the German state tended towards separation, 
but the greatest separatist of all was the emperor. Beside virtually severing the Netherlands from the empire, he sought to exempt his hereditary possessions from the jurisdiction of the national courts of law, from contributing to the national taxes, and from sharing the burden of national government. He was to be as absolute as he could in the empire at large, but while he controlled the national government, the national government was to have no control over his hereditary lands. It mattered little how much the imperial authority diminished provided the Habsburg power grew. No one should henceforth be emperor unless he came of the Habsburg race. The extent of his heritage was greater than that of any German Reich, and he thought that his allegiance to his family transcended his obligations to any one of the realms over which he ruled. But so far as Germany was concerned, the Emperor Charles V never rose from a narrow dynastic to a broad national conception of his duties and of his opportunities as ruler of Germany. Both the extent of the realm and the authority of the central government dwindled under his sway. He narrowed the German Reich and weakened the Reich Regiment. While German national interests were thus subordinated to those of a family, while the nominal control of the empire's foreign policy was vested in the hands of one who regarded Germany as only a piece in the game of dynastic ambitions, the German people reaped no corresponding advantage from increased security. The endless role of principalities and powers which adorned Charles V's style and dazzled the eyes of the electors proved no more than a paper wall of defense. The emperor's strength was also his weakness. It was dissipated all over Europe, and though Germans turned the scale in Italy, few troops came from Spain or Burgundy to defend the empire against the Turks or the French. While Francis I and Soleiman wielded swords, Charles V seemed to brandish an armory of cumbrous weapons, which were only of use if used altogether and were frequently unavailable at the critical moment. Germany had to look to itself for defense, and a further element of separatism was fostered by the consequent tendency of individual princes to make arrangements with Charles' enemies behind the emperor's back. The nation was not long left in doubt as to the character of the ruler whom it had chosen or the objects he meant to pursue. German envoys to Spain were not well pleased with their youthful sovereign's obvious devotion to priestly rights or with the intimation that they must negotiate in the Flemish tongues because Charles could neither speak German nor Latin. Nor was his first act as emperor calculated to reassure his people. Amid the confusion of the interregnum Ulrich, the dispossessed Duke of Wittenberg attempted to recover his duchy. He was easily defeated by the Swabian League, which ceded its conquest to Charles on the repayment of the cost of the campaign. Ulrich was a ruffian who deserved no consideration, but his vices did not abrogate the rights of his heirs, and it was utterly repugnant to German custom and sentiment for the emperor to confer a fief upon himself. No territory, however, was so convenient for the extension of Austria's influence as Wittenberg. With it in Habsburg's hand, Zevenbergen thought that Charles and his brother would dominate Germany, and so Wittenberg passed into Habsburg procession with Zevenbergen as its governor. 
Troubles in Spain and adverse winds delayed Charles' departure from the shores of Galicia until May 1520, and his two interview with Henry VIII further postponed his coronation at Aachen until October 23. There, he swore to observe the promise made before his election, and on November 1st, he summoned a diet to meet in the following January. He then made his way up the Rhine to Worms, where on January 28th, the day sacred to Charles the Great, he opened perhaps the most famous of all the diets in German history in 1521. The dramatic episode of Luther's appearance and condemnation by the Edict of Worms had, however, been allowed to obscure the more important business of the Diet and to convey a somewhat misleading impression. The devils on the roofs at the houses at Worms were really rather friendly to Luther than otherwise, and the renowned Edict itself was not so much an expression of settled national policy as an expedient recommended by the temporary exigencies of the Emperor's foreign relations and only extorted from him by Leo's promise to cease from supporting Charles' foes. Probably, Charles himself had no expectations of seeing the edict executed, and certainly the princes who passed it had no such desire. They were much more intent on securing redress of their grievances against the church, and on chastising the man who had attacked their common enemy. And the fact that the Diet, which condemned Luther's heresy, also solemnly formulated a comprehensive indictment against the Roman Church throws a vivid light upon the twofold aspect which the Reformation assumed in Germany as elsewhere. The origin of the whole movement was a natural attempt on the part of man, with the progress of enlightenment, to emancipate himself from the clerical tutelage under which he had labored for centuries, and to remedy the abuses which were an inevitable outcome of the exclusive privileges of authority of the Church. These abuses were traced directly or indirectly to the exemption of the Church and its possessions from secular control, and to the dominion which it exercised over the laity, and the revolt against this position of immunity and privilege was one of the most permanently and universally successful movements of modern history. It was, in the beginning, quite independent of dogma, and it pervaded Catholic as well as Protestant countries. The state all over the world has completely deposed the church from the position it held in the Middle Ages, and the existence of churches, whether Catholic or Protestant, in the various political systems, is due not to their own intrinsic authority, but the fact that they are tolerated and encouraged by the state. No ecclesiastic has any appeal from the temporal laws of the land in which he lives. In 1521, clerical ministers ruled the greater part of Europe, Wolsey in England, Adrian in Spain, Duprat in France, and Matthew Lang, with no small extent in Germany. Today, there is not a clerical prime minister in the world, and the temporal states of the Catholic Church have shrunk to the few acres covered by the Vatican. The Church has ceased to trespass on secular territory and returned to her original spiritual domain. This was, roughly speaking, the main issue of the Reformation. It was practically universal, while the dogmatic questions were subsidiary and took different forms in different localities. It was on this principle that the German nation was almost unanimous in its opposition to Rome, and its feelings were accurately reflected in the Diet at Worms. Even Frederick of Saxony was averse from Luther's repudiation of Catholic doctrine, but 
if the reformer had confined himself to an attack on the church in its temporal aspects, Pope and Emperor together would have been powerless to secure his condemnation. The whole nation wrote a canon of worms, was of one mind with regard to clerical immorality, from emperor down through all classes to the last man. Nine-tenths of Germany declared the papal nuncio, cried, Long live Luther! And the other tenth shouted, Death to the church! Duke George of Saxony, the staunchest of Catholics, was calling for a general council to reform abuses, and Gattinara, Charles' shrewdest advisor, echoed the recommendation. Even Jean Glapion, the emperor's confessor, was believed to be not averse from an accommodation with Luther, provided that he would disavow the Babylonish captivity. And in Worms itself, the papal emissaries went about in fear of assassination. The Germans wrote to install to Wolsey from Worms, were everywhere so addicted to Luther that a hundred thousand of them would lay down their lives to save him from the penalties pronounced by the Pope. This popular enthusiasm for Luther led Napoleon to express the belief that, had Charles adopted his cause, he would have conquered Europe at the head of an united Germany. But an imperial sanction of Lutheranism would not have killed the separatist tendencies of German politics, nor was it Lutheran doctrine which had captivated the hearts of the German people. He was a hero of the Hauer sorely because he stood for the national opposition to Rome. The circumstances in Germany in 1521 were not dissimilar to those in England in 1529. There was an almost universal repugnance to clerical privilege and to the Roman Curia, but the section of the nation which was prepared to repudiate Catholic dogma was still insignificant, and a really national government, which regarded national unity as of more importance than the immediate triumph over any religious party, would have pursued the policy something like that of Henry VIII in his later years. It would have kept the party of doctrinal revolution in due subordination to the national movement against the abuses of a corrupt clerical caste and in Italian domination. It would have endeavored to satisfy the popular demand for practical reform without alienating the majority by surrendering to a sectional agitation against Catholic dogma. But both the man and the forces were wanting. Charles often dallied with the idea of a limited practical reform, and he had already slighted the papacy by allowing Luther to be heard at the Diet of Worms after his condemnation by the Pope, as if an imperial edict were of more effect in matters of faith than a papal bull. He could hardly, however, be reformer in Germany and reactionary in Spain, and the necessities of his dynastic position as well as his personal feelings tied him to the Catholic cause. His frequent and prolonged period of absence and his absorption in other affairs prevented him from bestowing upon the government of Germany that vigilant and concentrated attention which alone enabled Henry VIII to affect his aims in England. And the task of dealing with the religious and with the no less troublesome political and social discord in Germany was left to the Council of Regency and practically for five years to Ferdinand. The composition and powers of this body were among the chief questions which came before the Diet of Worms. When the electors extorted from Charles a promise to re-establish the Reichsregiment, they had in their mind a national administration like that suggested by Berthold of Mainz. When Charles gave his pledge, he was thinking of a council which should be, like Maximilian's, olic rather than national. And he imagined that he was redeeming his pledge when he proposed 
to the Diet the formation of a government which was to have no control over foreign affairs, and a control limited by his own assent over domestic administration. The regent, or head of the council, and six of its twenty members were to be nominated by the emperor. These were to be permanent, but the other fourteen, representing the empire, were to change every quarter. This body was to have no power over Charles' hereditary dominions, nor over the newly won Wittenberg. The emperor, in short, was to control the national government, but the writs of the national government were not to run in the Habsburg territories. On the other hand, the princes demanded a form of government which would have practically eliminated the imperial factor from the empire. The government council was to have the same authority whether Charles himself were present or not. It was to decide foreign as well as domestic questions, and in it, the emperor would be represented only in the same way as other princes, namely, by a proportionate numbers of members chosen from his hereditary lands. In the compromise which followed, Charles secured the decisive point. The government which was formed was too weak to weld Germany into a political whole, able to withstand the disintegrating influence of its own particularism and of the Habsburg dynastic interest, and Charles was left free to pursue without his reign the old imperial maxim, divide et impera. The Reist regiment was to have independent power only during the emperor's absence, at other times it was to sink into an advisory body, and important decisions must always have his assent. He was to nominate the president and four out of the council's twenty-two members, but his own dominions were to be subject to its authority. The determination of religious questions was left largely in the hands of the estates, and Charles undertook to form no leagues or alliances, affecting the empire without the council's consent. The reconstitution of the Supreme National Court of Justice, or Reichskammergericht, presented few variations from the form adopted at Constance in 1507, and the ordinance establishing it is almost word for word the same as the original proposal of Berthold of Mainz in 1495. The imperial influence was slightly increased by the provision permitting him to nominate two additional assessors to the court, but being paid by the empire and not by the emperor, its members retained their independence. A measure which ultimately proved to be of more importance than the reorganization of these two institutions was the partition of the Habsburg inheritance. One of the most cherished projects of Ferdinand of Aragon had been the creation of northern Italy, of a kingdom for the benefit of the younger of his two grandsons, which would have left Charles free to retain his Austrian lands. That scheme had failed, but the younger Ferdinand, especially when he became betrothed to the heiress of Hungary and Bohemia, could not decently remain unendowed while his brother possessed so much, and on April 28, in 1521, a contract was ratified transferring to Ferdinand the five Austrian duchies of Austria, Carinthia, Carniola, Styria, and Tyrol. This grant formed the nucleus of the present so-called dual monarchy. It was gradually extended by the transference to Ferdinand of all of Charles V's possessions and claims in Germany, and the success with which the younger brother governed his German subject 
made them regret that Ferdinand had not been elected emperor in 1519, instead of having to wait 37 years for the prize. Soon after the conclusion of the Diet of Worms, Charles left Germany, which he was not to see again until nine years later. And long before then, the attempt of the central government to control the disruptive forces of political and religious separatism had hopelessly broken down. A pathetic interest attaches to the intervening struggles of the Reichsregiment as being the last effort to create a modern German national state coextensive with the medieval empire, a state which would have included not only the present German empire, but Austria and the Netherlands, in which stretching from the shores of the Baltic to those of the Adriatic Sea, and from the Strait of Dover to the Niemen or the Vistula, would have dominated modern Europe, and a good deal of angry criticism has been directed against the particularist bodies, which one after the another repudiated the authority of the government and brought its work to naught. But particularism had so completely permeated Germany that the very efforts at unity were themselves tainted with particularist motives, and one reason alike for the favor with which princes like Frederick of Saxony regarded the Reichsregiment and for its ultimate failure was that with its ostensible unifying purpose, the government combined aims which served the interests of princes against those of other classes. The great princes of the empire present a double aspect, varying with the point of view from which they are regarded. To Charles, they were collectively an oligarchy which threatened to destroy the monarchic principle embodied in the person of the emperor. But individually, and from the point of view of their own dominions, they represented a monarchical principle similar to that which gave unity and strength to France, to England, and to Spain, a territorial principle more youthful and more vigorous than the effecte Kaisertum. The force of political gravitation had already modified profoundly the internal constitution of the empire. States like Saxony, Brandenburg, and Bavaria had acquired consistency and weight, and began to exercise an attraction over the numberless molecules of the empire, which the more distant and nebulous luminary of the Kaisertum could not counteract. The petty knights, the cities, and towns found it ever more difficult to resist the encroachments of neighboring princes, and princely influence over municipal elections, and control over municipal finance went on increasing throughout the 16th century, till towards its end, the former autonomy of all but a select number of cities had well nigh disappeared. It was not from the emperor, but from princes, that knights and burgesses feared an attack on their liberties, and their danger threw them into an attitude of hostility to the Reichsregiment a body by means of which the princes sought to exercise in their own interest the national power. They could also appeal to the higher motive of imperial unity. The strength of imperial princes meant the weakness of the emperor, and unity in part might seem to be fatal to the unity of the whole. The Diet of Worms had in fact been a struggle between emperor and princes, in which neither had paid much regard to inferior classes, and the spoils were divided exclusively between the two combatants. The knightly order was denied all share in the government of the empire. 
they could expect no more consideration than before in their endless disputes over territory with their more powerful neighbors and Reis Kamergericht with its Roman law they regarded as an insufferable infringement on their own feudal franchises. The cities were not less discontented. They had been refused any representation in the Reist Regiment. Subsidies had been voted without their concurrence, and they anticipated with reason fresh taxation which would fall mainly on their shoulders. The new government was established at Nuremberg in November 1521, and in the following February it met the Diet. The first business was to raise forces to serve against the Turks, before whose advance Belgrade had just fallen and with Charles' consent, a portion of the supplies voted for the emperor's abandoned journey to Rome was applied to this purpose. Greater difficulty was experienced in finding means to defray the expenses of the imperial council and court of justice. It was proposed to revert to the common penny, to tax the Jews, and to apply the annates of the German church, which supported the Roman curia, to the purposes of the national government. But all these suggestions were rejected in favor of a scheme which offered the threefold advantage of promoting German unity, of relieving German capitalists of some of their superfluous wealth, and of sparing the pockets of those who voted the tax. All classes had soon perceived that there could be no peace and no justice unless somebody paid for it and its maintenance and administration and with one voice they began to excuse themselves from the honor of providing the funds. It was necessary, however, to select a victim, and the choice of the mercantile interest was received with acclamation by every other class in Germany. The commercial revolution, which marked at the end of the 15th and beginning of the 16th century, had led, as such revolutions always do, to the rapid and disproportionate accumulation of wealth in the hands of the few who knew how to exploit it, and the consequent growth of luxury and the increase of the powers of the mercantile magnates were a constant theme of denunciation in the mouth of the less fortunate men. The canonist doctrine of usury, based in the scriptural prohibition, still held sway in all but commercial circles, and the forestalling and regretting against which the English statute book in so eloquent excited no less odium in Germany. Theologians, united with lawyers in denouncing the figurae of the great trading companies, Luther and Zwingli Hutten and Erasmus, were of one mind on the question. Erasmus described the merchants as the basest of all mankind, and it was partly due to this feeling that the lawless robbery of traders at the hand of roving knights went on openly without an attempt to check it. The humanist, Henrik Bebel, even declared that the victims owed their captors a debt of gratitude because the seizure of their ill-gotten goods smoothed their path to heaven. This moral antipathy to the evil's effect of wealth, as exhibited in other people, was reinforced by the prevalent idea that money and riches were synonymous terms, and that the German nation was being steadily impoverished by the export of precious metals to pay for the imports it received from other countries, and especially English cloth and Portuguese spices. It was felt that some check must be put upon the process, 
and a national tax on imports and exports would, it was thought, cure this evil, satisfy at once the moral indignation of people and princes against capitalists and their selfish desire for fiscal immunity, and provide a stable financial basis for the national executive and judicial system, for the defense of the realm against foreign foes, and for the maintenance of peace within its borders. The measure, as passed by the Diet of Nuremberg in 1522, exempted all of the necessaries of life, but imposed a duty of 4% on all other merchandise to be paid on exports as well as on imports. Custom houses were to be erected along the whole frontier of the empire, which was defined for the purpose. Switzerland refused its consent and was excluded, and so were Bohemia and Prussia, the latter as being a fief of Poland, but the Netherlands were reckoned as an integral part of the empire, and had the project been carried out, it would have provided not only the revenues, which were its immediate object, but an invaluable labor for the unification of Germany. Not content, however, with this victory over the moneyed classes obtained through the cooperation of their own particular interests with the national sentiment, nor with the further prohibition of all trading companies possessing a capital of more than 50,000 crowns, the princes proceeded at the Diet held at Nuremberg in November 1522 to strike at the imperial cities which had hitherto refrained from making common cause with the capitalists. In language which remind the English reader of James I, they affirmed that the participation of the cities in the affair of the empire was not a matter of right, but one of grace and a privilege which might be withdrawn at pleasure. When the electors and princes had agreed on a measure, the cities, they said, had nothing to do but consent, and they were now required to levy a contribution toward the Turkish war which had been voted without their concurrence. The golden age of the towns had passed away in Germany, as well as in Italy. Their brilliant part in history had been played out, and they were already yielding place to greater political organizations, but they were not yet prepared to surrender to the princes without a struggle. At a congress of cities held at Spierg in March 1523, it was resolved to appeal from the Reichsregiment to the emperor, and an embassy was sent to lay their case before Charles at Valladolid in August. At first, the imperial court took up an attitude of real or feigned hostility to their demands, and there seems to be no conclusive evidence that this revolt against the national government had been encouraged by Charles. Yet the particularist interest of the cities appealed to the particularist interest of the emperor with a force which he could not resist. The opposition had been engineered by the Fougueres, and Charles's chronic insolvency rendered him peculiarly susceptible to the arguments which they could best apply. Jacob Fougueres had even boasted that to him and his house, Charles owed his election as emperor. So now the deputies undertook that Charles should not lose financially by granting their requests, and they also promised his counselors a grateful return for their trouble. Other wounds were alleged. It was hinted that the princes would use the proceeds of the tax in a way that boded no good for the imperial power in Germany. There was a scheme in hand for the appointment of a king of the Romans, 
who with adequate financial support might reduce the emperor to a cipher. Moreover, the Reichsregiment which required this revenue was itself superfluous. If Charles would select a trustworthy regent and maintain the Kammergericht, that would meet all the exigencies of the case, and his own position in the empire would be materially strengthened. Finally, to remove Charles' suspicions of the cities based on their alleged countenance of Lutheranism, they made the somewhat confident assertion that not a syllable of Luther's work had been printed in their jurisdiction for years, and that it was not with them that Luther and his followers found protection. Satisfied with these assurances, Charles intimated that he would take the government into his own hands, and appoint a regent, and a fresh Kammergericht forbid the imposition of the obnoxious tax and prohibit the regiment from dealing with monopolies without again asking his consent. The first great blow at the national government had been struck by the emperor at the instigation of the German cities. Another was at the moment being struck by the German nobility and a section of the German princes. End of section 17.